If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're bringing to the end the, the section that we've been in for the last, I think, couple months maybe, dealing with the, the universal guilt of, of men and women, that we're all in this fallen state, we're separated from God, we have all transgressed, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of His glory, and we're all in big trouble, and there's no one exempt from that. We're all, we are all born into this, this condition. And so Paul spends a couple of chapters really hammering down on that, making it very clear, and there's no escaping it. But then he's going to transition out of that partway through chapter 3 and get into the glorious news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. And you can't fully understand the beauty of the good news without first understanding the, the gravity of the bad news. So Paul's been spending a lot of time helping us understand just how bad it really is. So we're still in that portion of Scripture. We're going to pass out of that today and into the good news. So I'm very grateful for that. Very grateful for that. Uh, allow me to, to pray for us. Father, we love you. We praise you and we're so grateful that you've revealed yourself to us in your word. I'm so grateful that indeed you have revealed to us our own sinful condition because the Bible does say that our hearts are desperately wicked and we can't even truly know it. We can't truly understand how bad it really is. So we, we thank you, Father, for helping us to have some understanding through Your Word and by Your Spirit, God, of our, our condition outside of Christ and our desperate need for You. And I thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We worship You, Father. And I pray that as we work our way through Romans 3 today, that You would be honored, glorified, and that You would speak to our hearts, and that we would be challenged, strengthened, encouraged, blessed. And we love You, Lord, and it's for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. It's for His glory. That's what it's all about. God is doing some awesome things for, for His namesake, for His glory. And that's why we exist. The Westminster Catechism, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it was a, an assembly of theologians in 1647 that came together, and Protestant theologians came, to, came together and created this statement, if you will, this catechism to help systematically teach doctrine, the core essentials of the Christian faith. There was a very long version, but then there was a shorter version, and that shorter version has 107 questions and answers, and that's the, the way it's formatted. So it, it asks a question, and then it gives the answer, and there's 107 of these. And that's the shorter one, believe it or not. Well, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? What is our purpose? Why are we here? What do we exist to do? And the answer to that question is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I think that's a wonderful answer, don't you? And John Piper modified that a little bit to say to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And so we oftentimes use that word glory for the glory of God or to bring glory to God or to, to demonstrate God's glory. And I wonder how many of us really know what we're saying when we say that, if we do say that at all, or, or how much time we give considering God's glory or, or desiring to make God's glory known. So I wanted to just take a quick second here to, to talk about glory, the concept of God's glory. And I think there's really three ways to understand this. 
there's the intrinsic glory of God. And that is to say, it is what it is. God is glorious. And He manifests glory. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is holy. He is majestic. He is love. He is beautiful. He is glorious. Nothing can change that. Can't add to it. Can't take it away. It simply is what He is. He's glorious. Then I would say there's reflected glory. And I, that is when I, I believe we, in some ways, model Christ-likeness. Or we, we demonstrate some attribute of God. Uh, patience, mercy, love, kindness. And then God is glorified. We've reflected uh, God's glory in that way. We have demonstrated some level of, of some characteristic of God Himself. And that, that is a reflection of God's glory. People see that and they glorify God. And then that leads me to ascribed glory. And that's, that's when we very intentionally and deliberately give glory to God. When we proclaim who He is and how wonderful He is and the things that He has done and our devotion unto Him, we are ascribing glory to God. And that's what it's all about. It's all about the glory of God. Amen? Now, as I had mentioned before, that Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But I would say to you that the, the chief propensity of mankind is to glorify self and to enjoy self-exaltation. Wouldn't you? I mean, that, I think that's what comes naturally to mankind. In our sinful, fallen state, we're not concerned with the glory of God. We're concerned with the glory of self. We're concerned with building our own kingdoms, establishing our own security, our own safety, our own well-being, maybe making a name for ourselves. And that is seen dramatically in Genesis chapter 11. I believe it's Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Are you familiar with the story? Oftentimes you'll hear that the story described as some people were trying to build a stairway up to heaven. And that's really not what's happening there. It's amazing to me even still that, that people would portray it as such, but that's not what's happening. God had told mankind to, to go, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to be uh, fruitful, to multiply, but they didn't do that. They stayed local, they localized, they began to grow in their building technologies, and they said, you know what, we're just going to stay here and we're, gonna, we're going to build a monument unto our greatness, unto ourselves. And that's what that was. So they built this tower that reached to the heavens as a demonstration of the achievement of man, what man could do. And so it was direct defiance to God. And I would say that is essentially what's in the heart of man. That's what we are capable of. We exist to bring glory to God, but our propensity is to bring glory to self. To bring glory to self. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That's something worth glorying in. Amen? the knowledge of the Lord, that we understand and know Him. But we, we oftentimes will boast in much lesser things. He says, let not the mighty man boast in his might. We see strength, we see power, and we're impressed with that. God says, don't be impressed by that. 
And it says, don't let the, the rich glory in his riches. We see people who have a lot of money, a lot of wealth, a lot of influence, and we think, wow, we're impressed by that, are we not? Or maybe even intimidated by, by that a little bit. God says, don't be impressed by that. You see people who are very wise, very scholarly, and we can feel like, wow, you know, they're on a whole another level. I can't even compete with that person. They're so wise and, and so brilliant. But God says, don't be impressed by that. If you want to glory in anything, glory that you know me, that you know the Lord. And as I said so often, we, we glory in lesser things. I couldn't help but think of Mark chapter 13. Jesus and his disciples are walking past the temple, this temple that Herod had built. Uh, he was a master builder. He loved to undertake these huge architectural endeavors. And it was amazing. It was massive. And so they're walking by it and they say, Lord, consider what manner of stones these are. They were gigantic. And Jesus' response to that was, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. This building will be destroyed. It's very temporal. Jesus wasn't impressed by that. But we can be impressed. We can glory in much lesser things. That is the propensity of man's heart. That's what we do. We glory in lesser things instead of the Lord. And you know, um, as I said, man has a propensity to seek for glory in so many things, not least of which salvation. And I'm kind of connecting the dots to where we are at in our study today. We can glory in so many things. We can glory in the achievements of men. We can glory in wealth and power and, and might and wisdom. And we can also glory in this idea that we can ascend to the heavenlies. That we can reach God by our own good deeds, by our own merits, by our own keeping of the law, by being a good person. That is man's tendency and that is demonstrated in all the man-made religions. You look around, one thing that clearly separates Christianity from all the other religions is all the other religions say you basically just have to be good enough. You have to have more good deeds than bad deeds. And you can't really know, but on the judgment day, that's, that's their hope. Christianity says you can't. You cannot. So God does it for you. I love this quote. Jonathan Edwards says that the only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. That is so good. That is, that is about what it boils down to. You know, I cannot save myself. You cannot save yourself. We just don't have it in us. It's something that only God can do. And it's for God's glory. It's what it boils down to. It's for God's glory. So that's what Paul has been doing. He's been making it painfully clear for these chapters that we're in trouble, we're separated from God. doesn't matter who you are. If, you might, if you're a, a, an immoral pagan or a, a, a good person, so to speak, or a, a religious hypocrite or whoever you are, we're all in trouble. And that we are totally incapable of saving ourselves. So when God saves us through faith by grace, we can do but one thing, and that is glory in Him. And that's where Paul is trying to bring it to. And uh, that's, that's where he lands in Romans chapter 3. So, with that, let's get moving. I'm going to move through the first part of the chapter rather quickly. Um, and uh, I want to really focus in on the latter, latter part of, of the chapter. So, just kind of know that. 
All right. So, you will recall in the end of chapter 2, it's been several weeks now, Paul was making the point that being an ethnic Jew will not save you. He dealt with the, the idolatrous people, the, the, the pagans, and he's made his way all the way over to the ethnic religious Jews. And he said both are guilty before God. And the Jews are not saved just because of circumcision or any kind of Jewish religion or, or heritage that might be theirs. It says, for a Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. So you can do everything right on the outside and be dead on the inside, be totally separated from God. And so Paul makes it clear it's not about your religious heritage, it's about your heart and your sincerity before the Lord. So then, I believe, after Paul caps chapter 2 off with that, he begins to anticipate the arguments that are going to be put forth by the, by the Jewish hearers. Those who would hear that statement, and then they're going to respond back to Paul with these questions. So Paul is anticipating the Jewish reasoning, and he's going to speak to that. And there's going to be five or six questions that Paul is going to put forth, and then he's going to respond to those questions with his own, his own answer. This is pretty cool what Paul is doing here. He's employing an ancient teaching method known as diatribe. We hear that now and it's a negative thing. It's, you know, someone's ranting at you for like an hour straight. They went off on some diatribe. That's not what this is. And it's, it's Socratic in nature. That is to say it was a method that Socrates employed to ask a question and then to give the answer and to kind of have this back and forth dialogue uh, anticipating what people are going to think and ask and then giving them the answer before they even get to it. So Paul begins to do that very thing. And so there are several questions that come here that, that seem to be uh, hitting at a certain aspect of, of God's character, as though God is being called into question here. And so, Paul, based on these statements that you just made about how being an ethnic Jew does not save, well then, doesn't that mean this about God? And that, that essentially is what we see happen here with these, these five or six questions. And so, question number one, verse one, chapter three, the, the Jewish hearer might say, well, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So it's kind of like saying, well, what's the point then? What purpose is there in being a Jew? What benefit is there? And Paul says, look, there is tremendous benefit in being uh, an ethnic Jew. God, not least of which, entrusted to you the oracles of God. That is the revelation of God, the special written uh, revelation that we received in the Old Testament of God. And that's huge. Because the world had the general revelation of God. Everyone was guilty in that they knew there was a creator and that God's law was written on their hearts. But the Jews were actually given special revelation of this God. That had been entrusted to them. So uh, that's the first thing that, that Paul addresses here. What's, what is the purpose in it? They're kind of railing an accusation against the purposes of God. Now they're going to call... God's faithfulness into question. So verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome 
when you are judged. So basically, they're saying if God's promises to the Jews are based on their faith and not their heritage, and they refuse to believe they don't have faith, does that somehow impede God's faithfulness? Is God's faithfulness not reliant upon my own faithfulness? And if I don't believe, if I reject, and then God can't make good on His promises, doesn't that make Him unfaithful? And so that seems to be the argument that's coming out here. And so Paul says, obviously, absolutely not. Let every man be a liar and God be true. If the whole world rose up in rejection of God, God is still faithful. He cannot help but be faithful. It's who He is. It's what He is. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that if we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. God's faithfulness is never depending upon man's faithfulness. Man, that would be... That would be a messed up situation right there to think that somehow God was hindered or dependent upon us to be faithful. So Paul cuts that down at the root. Well, the next question, now they're going to call God's justice into, into play here. So verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? So this is an argument of, of logic. Okay, look, then if my unrighteousness only further demonstrates God's righteousness, it's like a diamond in front of a black backdrop. It just serves to make the diamond stand out. So my unrighteousness makes God's un, uh, righteousness shine greater. Is He unjust to inflict wrath on me then? If my wickedness magnifies God's righteousness, is He unjust? And Paul again says, absolutely not. No way. And he says that God, if He were unjust, He would basically be disqualified as a judge if He were unjust. And again, I quote this quite a bit, but Genesis 18.25, Abraham asked that question of God, will not the judge of the earth do right? And the answer is, of course He will. God's justice stands. He will always do that which is right. Well, verse 7, now they're going to attack God's judgment. Verse 7, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? So this is that same line of reasoning. If me being a liar somehow magnifies God being truthful, then why am I judged as a sinner? And obviously that's faulty logic and that's a silly argument to even make. And Paul's going to basically go into verse or question 5 here and it's going to be the capstone conclusion of these uh, questions 3 and 4. So verse 8, And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So basically, if my unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, if my lie serves to magnify the truth, why not just continue to sin all that I want to? Why don't we just go on ahead and sin as much as we can that good may come, that it might further demonstrate God's goodness? And then... Paul says that some slanderously report that we say such things and that they deserve to be condemned for that. 
And so Paul again just says that that is patently false. That is blatantly uh, God dishonoring. Silly that someone would even ask such a question. And that apparently people were actually saying that, that kind of thing. And we see Paul take that up again in chapter 6 when he says, uh, what, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, if God's graciousness is demonstrated by my sinfulness, why not just sin all I want to? And then he says, absolutely not. So now Paul's going to ask a question of his own. We're going to transition now a little bit more in, into this universal guilt. And so Paul says in verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So Paul says, look, this is the argument that they put forth, and he can, he can refute it at every point, but then he says, look, does this make us any better than them? Does this make me any better than them? And then he says, absolutely not. Both Jews and Greeks, they are all under sin. So again, Paul is just making it very clear that everyone is guilty before God. The Jew, the, the Gentile, the pagan, idolater, the moral person, the hypocrite, it doesn't matter. Everyone is guilty. And now he's going to give some Old Testament scriptures to back this up. This is Paul's Old Testament proof of his argument. So verse 10 in Romans. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have to together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So Paul is referencing Psalm 14, 1-3 here. He's dealing with the, the general sinfulness of mankind, the human condition. And he says that there is none who does good, no, not one. There is none righteous. There are none who seek after God. Now, this is not to say that everybody is as bad as they can possibly be. Right? We understand that. There, we look around and we see some good things happening out in the world, do we not? And I would say that that in and of itself is a demonstration that man is created in the image of God and that man is capable of doing good things. But no one can do good to the extent that they can be saved. No one can do good to the extent that they are upright before God and that they, are, they make it into heaven. There is no goodness uh, outside of God's gracious intervention. No one seeks after God. As he said, none is righteous, no one does good, no one seeks God. Apart from God's gracious intervention into our lives, we would not seek Him. The Scriptures are very clear about that. We are quite busy, quite content doing our own thing, pursuing our own desires, our own passions, our own dreams, our own goals and objectives, our own agenda, our own kingdom. But then God, God who is rich in mercy, intervenes graciously into our lives and reveals Himself to us, reveals to us our own need for Him, our own sinful condition. But apart from that, no one is seeking after God. Well, verse 13, Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So Paul's referencing Psalm 5, 9 and 10, 7 here. And he's addressing sinful speech. 
sinful speech. And that's significant because Jesus made it very clear. What does speech demonstrate? It demonstrates what's going on in here. Exactly right. It's a demonstration of what's in the heart. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out because that is a demonstration of what's really on the inside. And I thought that's kind of significant. You know, uh, Ephesians 4, uh, I think 4.29 says that um, we're to let no corrupt speech come out of our mouths except that which is necessary for edification, for building up. That word corrupt, it's sapros in the Greek and it literally means rotten. And it's used of uh, rotten fish, rotten fruit, and, and other places. You know, what would happen if you ingest rotten fish or rotten fruit? You would get sick. It's poisonous. And that's what corrupt speech is. It's rotten. It's poisonous. And I would say rotten speech, rotten heart. And that's what essentially Paul is getting at here. Even man's speech is a demonstration of man's sinful and wicked heart man's sinful condition. Verse 17 says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. So this is uh, referencing Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. And Paul is addressing the outward sinful actions, uh, especially violence. So here we see wicked heart, wicked speech, wicked actions. This is the the human condition outside of God, separated from God. And then Paul caps all of that off in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is referencing Psalm 36.1. And Paul is addressing the root of the whole issue. There is no fear. There is no fear of God. No fear. Now, let me just take a moment to, to talk about this. The fear of the Lord. Because the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But at the same time, we talk about how perfect love has cast out fear. Right? So are we supposed to fear God? Is there such thing as a healthy fear of God? Yes, there is. You know, we talk about fear. Let me just use a simple uh, example. Electricity. I'm grateful for it. There are so many benefits that we enjoy because of it. And we're surrounded by it right now. And when I walk in the room, I'm not cowering down to the floor because I think at any moment I'm going to get zapped, right? But I know better than to go stick a paper clip in a light socket, right? I respect electricity. I have a good, healthy fear of it. I'm grateful for it. There are many benefits I enjoy because of it, but I know better than to go tampering with it. Now, and, uh, that's a, a, a trivial kind of an example, but with God... I love God. I enjoy many wonderful benefits because He's my Heavenly Father. And I'm delighted to serve Him, to worship Him, to obey Him, to know Him. And there is no fear as far as torment goes because there is no judgment. My sins have been judged on the cross and now I stand before God forgiven and accepted in the Beloved. But He is still Almighty God. He is holy. He's a consuming fire. He is worthy to be worshipped. And, you know, I, I, I give him the respect, I hope. I try to give him the respect that he deserves and to recognize him as, as holy. And so Paul says there is none of that. There is none of that with the world. There's no fear of God. There's no recognition of God. There's nothing but wicked actions, wicked speech, and wicked hearts. 
And so Paul says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law says what it says, that every mouth may be stopped. That's strong language. And so that is our our condition outside of Christ. We are separated from God. We are enemies of God, dead in our trespasses and sin. And there's no amount of doing good that will fix that. There's no amount of keeping rules, keeping the law, doing right, doing charitable things that will have you justified in God's sight. It says every mouth will be stopped. That's very significant language, as I said. I I think about people who say, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God this, or I'm going to ask God that, or they point around at other people, all those Christians, I don't believe in Jesus because of them. Well, when you're standing before God, there's not going to be anyone to point at. There's not going to be people there to point and blame, and you won't be asking God anything, and you certainly won't be telling Him anything. Every mouth will be stopped. And it says, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh. And it says, the law only brings the knowledge of sin. I've talked about this over and over. The law is wonderful. The law is, is, is glorious. It's beautiful. There are many things that the law demonstrates. You know, one, God gave the law to national Israel to govern. They had been in Egypt for 400 years in, in bondage. Now they're out and they're going into the promised land and they have to be governed somehow so God gives them governing ordinances and in the law we see the heart of God we see compassion we see justice we see mercy we see love we see so many wonderful things about God but ultimately what the law does is show us that we're a bunch of law breakers and that we cannot keep God's law and that we cannot ascend to the heavenlies and that we cannot work our way up to God And that is the point that Paul is making crystal clear here, that the law only serves to condemn. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. In Romans chapter 7, Paul uses covetousness as an example, you know. He says, until I saw in the law that I was not supposed to covet, it wasn't even an issue. Then all of a sudden it became an issue. And we can relate with that, right? What is it about us? We want the things we cannot have. In fact, it may not even enter into our minds until we see it. Or until there's a prohibition put in place and we're told we cannot have it. Now all of a sudden it becomes extremely appealing. That's what the law will do. The revelation of the law is the revelation of our own sinful tendencies. So, now Paul is going to shift and he's going to get into the really good news. So this is the gospel masterpiece that I've been talking about. The gospel masterpiece. So much of what we believe about the gospel, it is just clearly outlined for us right here. So Paul spent a lot of time talking about the bad news and how we are all in that boat together and that no one escapes it. But now comes the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel. So verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So now we're told there's a righteousness that is apart from the law. Martin Luther referred to this as an alien righteousness. The great Protestant reformer. I love that phrase, alien righteousness. That is to say, 
It's outside of ourselves. It's foreign to us. It's not some righteousness that I can conjure up. We are totally unable, incapable. But there's a righteousness that is afforded to us that is outside of us and it comes from the Father. And we're told that this righteousness was witnessed by the law and the prophets. And that is to say that this, the, the New Testament is born out of the Old Testament. So much of what we understand clearly now and enjoy was foretold in the Old Testament. It was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And in these last days, the mystery has been revealed to us. And so this isn't something foreign to the Old Testament. It was witnessed by the law and the prophets. And we're told that this is through faith in Jesus Christ. This righteousness that is outside of ourselves, that is afforded to us by the grace of God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mechanism. Jesus is the mechanism through which this uh, righteousness is imparted to us by putting our trust in Him. It's not enough to just believe that He is, that He was some historical figure that lived and died, but it's to put our trust in Him for salvation solely. We do believe that we are who He says we are, that we have sinned, that we've fallen short, that we are desperately and hopelessly lost. We believe that He is who He says He is, that He really is the Son of God. He really came. He really lived a perfect life. He really died on the cross for our sins. He really rose from the grave three days later. He really ascended into the heavens where He is seated at the right hand of the Father and He truly will return. And our salvation is truly in Him Alone, And now I will live for Him. I will bow the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I will surrender my life to Him. I will repent of my sins and I will follow Him. That's what it means to believe. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. And we're told this is to all who believe. To all who believe because all have sinned. So everyone is in this condition. Everyone is needy. And this is available to all those who believe. Those are the recipients of God's, sometimes we use the word imputed righteousness. That is to say it's been given to us. Well, verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we are being justified freely by His grace. Get that, guys. And people have a hard time with this. It's free. It's free. Justified freely. You can't pay for it. You cannot earn it. It is a gift that has been secured for us and is freely given to us. Now, it costs God a lot. It was an immense cost unto Him. He gave His Son, Jesus, to come and to, to die. And Jesus gave His life. He suffered the wrath of God on that cross. It was an immense cost. But it's freely given to us. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. And we're told that it's through redemption. This justification that comes by His grace is through the redemption in Christ. Jesus is the agent of accomplishing said salvation. He's the mechanism of it, and He is the agent of accomplishing this. He did this for us on the cross. It's because of Jesus. I am not saved by works. Neither are you. But you know what? I am saved by works, and so are you. 
You get that? I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by the works of Jesus. I'm saved by the works that were accomplished in His sinless life and His death upon the cross in my stead, in your stead. And we're told that God set this forth. This was God's plan. This was God's work. And the very first mention of the Gospel is Genesis 3.15. We call it the Proto-Evangelion. It is the first Gospel. I won't go there, but it's fascinating. This was God's deal. And we're told that this is a propitiation by the blood of Jesus. It's a big word, propitiation. And it simply means a satisfaction of God's righteous requirement. Jesus' death, Jesus' bloodshed, was that which satisfied God's anger which satisfied God's wrath, which satisfied God's righteous requirement. You and I could not satisfy that. We had a debt that we could not pay. And we would die, if we were to die in that condition, we would be separated from God for eternity and suffer in a, a torment that is referred to as hell in the, in the Bible. And we, that, that's where we would go. But Christ satisfied God's wrath. He satisfied God's requirements and anger on the cross by His death, by His bloodshed. And then we're told that this was a demonstration of righteousness. A divine mystery is demonstrated at the cross. Let me just say that at this point, And I'm going to unpack that as we go. A divine mystery was demonstrated at the cross. We're told that in God's forbearance, He passed over sin talked about that word forbearance before. It's speaking of a truce between warring parties. It means to hold back. So the very fact that God doesn't judge everyone at one time today is tremendous forbearance on God's part. He's holding back wrath until a certain point when He will execute that wrath. We're told that He passed over sins. I'm going to read a quote to you from MacArthur here on God passing over sins. This means neither indifference nor remission. God's justice demands that every sin and sinner be punished. God would have been just when Adam and Eve sinned to destroy them and with them the entire human race. But in His goodness and forbearance, He withheld His judgment for a certain period of time. God withheld. We're told to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. What does that mean? Well, let me put it to you like this. From eternity past, God determined a point in human history when the second person of the Trinity would become incarnate, when Jesus Christ would take on flesh and He would walk among us. He would live a life of perfect obedience to God's law, and he would die a sinner's death. This demonstrating God as just and the justifier. So at the cross, God's justice and mercy meet. That is the divine mystery. How can God be just? How can He be judge of the earth and allow sin to go unpunished? He cannot. But how can God at the same time be gracious and merciful and loving well, it happens at the cross. Justice is served. The sins are punished. They are paid for upon the cross. And because of that, now God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, God's compassion is 
poured out without measure upon those who have had their sins pardoned at the cross. That is the glorious mystery. That is the mystery of God's righteousness demonstrated to us at the cross that He could be both just and the justifier. Amen? And that is the glorious Gospel, brothers and sisters. And that was accomplished for us at the cross. And we cannot boast in that. We can do nothing but give glory to God. And that's the point of this whole thing. When it's all said and done, glory to God. Amen? That's all we can do. It's not glory to me. It's not glory to you. If we're going to glory in anything, we're going to glory that we know Him. And that our salvation has been secured in Him. And that we brought nothing to the table but the sin that made our salvation necessary. Yet God, who is rich in love and mercy, paid the highest price to secure salvation for rebel sinners like you and myself. And we'll close right there. Father, we love You and we praise Your holy name. We thank You for the good news of the Gospel and we thank You for the cross. We thank You, Lord, for making it so very clear to us that we were in trouble and that we were desperately in need of a Savior. But You didn't just make that known, Father. You accomplished that for us. You sent a Savior. You sent a Savior into the world who was in every way fit, who was in every way capable to secure salvation for us. And we thank You that it has been freely given to us as a gift from You. And we receive that, Lord. We walk in that, Father. And we praise You as beloved sons and daughters. And I pray, Lord, for anyone in this room who may not know that. Anyone in this room who have not had their sins forgiven, God. I know You're drawing them right now to Yourself. It's no coincidence that they are here. And that they're hearing the Gospel preached. Thank You that You're having mercy on them. Thank You that in Your grace and Your kindness, God, You're giving them the opportunity here and now to hear the Gospel preached and to respond. So we worship You, Lord. We praise You. We thank You for the good news of the Gospel. And it's all for the glory of Your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.